Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey y'all, it's Friday and it's April 1st. (laughs) Welcome to the happy hour. This is no April Fool's joke. We have a great show for you today. Okay, that's cheesy, but I had to do it. You guys, I'm Jamie. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Today's a really great show. I have a friend join me, Brittany Salmon, and we talk about adoption. And and before I get into the show description and tell you what's happening, I wanna tell you this. This show is for all of us. It's truly for all of us, whether adoption is a part of your story or not. I would bet money, if you're listening to my podcast, You run in circles where you know someone who either is adopted or has adopted or is thinking about adopting or is foster care or or whatever. This this episode is for all of us. Don't miss out on this conversation today. Brittany actually came into Austin and sat in the studio with me, which is always fun. And it always makes for a better interview. So I'm so grateful when a person can actually do that. Brittany's a Texas girl. She's a professor. She's a writer, a Bible teacher, and she's actually working on her doctorate right now. We get into that a little bit. But Brittany and I sit and we talk about her book. Her book actually releases on Tuesday. So on Tuesday, this book comes into the world and I said it on the show. I've said it in my Instagram stories, and I'm going to say it here. This is the book right now that I'm recommending for everyone read. If they are thinking about adopting, if they have adopted, if they know someone that's adopted, if they're doing foster care, whatever it is, it's called It Takes More Than Love, A Christian Guide to Navigating the Complexities of Cross-Cultural Adoption. And I talked about this on my stories recently on Instagram, which if you're not following me on Instagram, I'd love to be your friend over there. Follow me at Jamie Ivy. And I was telling um, my Instagram followers, my Instagram friends about this book. And someone said, is this for just like transracial adoption? Is this for anything? I said, this is for anything. And it's for all of us. In fact, there's a whole chapter in here for those of you that have never adopted. There's a chapter in here for you. I I cannot talk highly enough about this book. I am so proud of Brittany for the work she's done. People often ask me, Jamie, are you going to write about adoption? And the answer is a resounding no, never, ever not going to do it. Uh, Brittany has done it for me. (laughs) This is a great book. Um, But today we talk in this conversation about church and adoption, about race and adoption. And we also talk about her journey in seminary. Uh, This conversation is just beautiful. And I was so happy to have Brittany join me uh, in the office to talk about this because after I read her book, I knew I wanted to dive deeper with her. So you're going to love this conversation today that I have with my friend Brittany. Guys, and if you do love it, uh, I'd love for you to leave us a rating or a review over wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever that is. If it's on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is, we'd love to hear from you and what you're loving. All right, guys, here is my conversation with my friend, Brittany. Brittany, welcome to the happy hour. Thanks for having me. Okay, the reason this is so fun are a lot of reasons. Number one, um, you're in my town. Yes. You're in my office. Yes. Number two, you and I went to El Paso and Juarez Mm -hmm. this fall together, which is where we met in real life for the first time, although we've communicate yeah. online um and number three we're talking about something i think is very important today adoption Absolutely. and all the things and so welcome thank you so much for having me okay now i want you to introduce yourself and i also want to say that i'm very honored because you told me this is your very first interview about this book it is it is yes are you uh, nervous i'm i'm terrified <laughs> i'm actually really anxious about the whole thing this interview with me or just the book uh the book in general yeah the book in general what did i this <laughs> i'm gonna t- this is gonna prove my like hardness sometimes what did i tell you when you told me that in october when you said i'm really nervous and anxious about it? what did i say you said you have every right to be yeah you i said, said you absolutely should you yeah. should be yeah and mm-hmm. i meant that in the kindest way but it's true yeah it's really true you'd be lying to me if not yeah yeah okay so introduce yourself and then introduce your book too let's do that okay i'm Brittany salmon I'm a professor at Liberty University. Um, I did not know that, by the way. I am, yeah. I is am. this like, like how, how did I miss that? Well, it's, I don't go around like, hey, this is what I do. Also, I feel like because it's online, I'm not going to be like, hey, I teach online or hey, I do this. It's not something that I really talk about in my daily life. Okay. I mom a lot. I do it from home. I teach from home. And so I think most people don't know that I also teach online. What do you teach? Global studies. So I teach in their School of Divinity um, and their Global Studies Department, cross-cultural communication and engagement. Wow. It's just a fancy way of saying cross-cultural What do they call you? Professor. 
just <laughs> professor or Mrs. Salmon. Although I did have a student one time called me sweetheart. Oh, that, that was kind. Yeah, that was kind. <laughs> Dave from the South. <laughs> sweetheart. Um, so. Well, you may have some students that listen to this. Does that make you nervous? A little. Okay. A little. But right okay. now, everything makes me nervous about this. Yeah. So just part of it. Okay. Professor, mom. Mom, my husband, he owns and operates a Chick-fil-A. And so I help out with a restaurant sometimes. Um, I usually make messes. Like you don't want me in the kitchen at yeah. all. People, if I go in the kitchen, I'm like, hey, they're like, get out. Yep. Just get yep. out. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do that. And we're active in our community, in our local church. Um, and I wrote a book. And you're getting your doctorate. Oh, you and I'm getting you my, have to I say forgot. that. Oh, my I gosh. Forgot. And I'm getting my doctorate. Yes. At Southeastern Seminary. We're going to talk about that later okay. because I have so many questions about yeah. that. But so that everyone knows what are you getting your doctorate in or uh, is that how you say it yeah doctorate sure. in um i'm getting um it's a doctorate of education it's christian education overall but i'm doing my dissertation in racial representation in christian publishing cannot wait so i i can't wait either i hope i finish when are you going to be done with that <laughs> lord willing either this december or next may okay. so in the next year or two depending on how things go in two weeks i take my first um the first shot at my comprehensive exam so if i get past that then I just have to write a dissertation. Mm-hmm. So next year we will welcome Dr. Salmon. Hey, hey, let's hope. Lord willing, Lord it's willing, gonna happen. Lord willing, it's going to happen. Well, okay, and you wrote a book. Tell us about yes. it. Well, just we're going to talk about it, but uh-huh. you tell me what it is. It's a guide for Christian families who are considering cross-cultural adoption. Um, so it's called "It Takes More Than Love." It's kind of walking through some of the myths and some of the lies that we maybe we believed at the beginning of the adoption process, or at least I believed at the beginning of the adoption process. It's the book that I wish I had when I started the adoption process. So, um, yeah. I want to say this right now to the listener. If you heard that and you think, I am not adopting, I'm not adopted, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say real quick that this is for all of us. Absolutely. Especially as a Christian. Yes. And I think because if you're a Christian, I'm hoping that you go to church. And if you do go to church, I think, and you and I will try not to get on any kind of soapboxes here. <laughs> try. We'll try. But I think in the past, a lot of churches have done a disservice around the conversation of adoption. Absolutely. And so the reason I'm saying that up front is because if you think this does not apply to my life, but you are a Christian and you attend a church, it does. Absolutely. In fact, in the book, I have a chapter specifically for non, non I guess, people who aren't impacted by adoption, whether they're grandparents of, a, you know, maybe an adoptee, mm-hmm. or maybe you're just a Sunday school teacher and you, you see like, oh, there's some families in my church who are fostering or they're adopting. This book is for you. And if you don't read the whole thing, there's at least one chapter that I'm sure every every adoptive family in your life would love for you to read. Yeah. Well, I I told you when we were together Mm -hmm. in, um, when was that? November? I don't even know. Yeah. October. Yeah. (laughs) Sometime last year. Fall last year. (laughs) Yes. We were riding in in the van um, and I told you that I'm so grateful that you wrote this book. And I will say this. I told you that before I read it. I read this book a couple weeks ago when I was on a cruise with Aaron And I immediately texted you and I said, you have done really good work, Mm. friend. And I say that as someone who is very cautious Mm -hmm. about adoption conversations. Um, I say no to speaking at most adoption events. Uh, I don't want to write about adoption (laughs) Uh, because it's layered and nuanced in unbelievable ways. Yeah, it's one of those things with writing the book, people are like, hey, you're writing this book. And I'm like, I'm excited. But honestly, there's so many potholes that you're trying to avoid when in trying to like hard situations you're handling with care. That it was exhausting. Um, I'm grateful to be able to do it. But it is one of those things where I respect people and they're like, hey, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to write about it. This we're an adoptive family, but this subject is off limits for the public. I, I have an immense amount of respect for people who say, we're not doing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, I say all that to say, um, I think I even told Lindsay when I got done, I was like, this will be a book I will recommend to everyone mm-hmm. who is thinking about adoption, wanting to adopt, involved in foster care at any kind of capacity. Mm-hmm. And so you did a great job. With all that to say, let's jump in. And um, I told you before we started, I was going to be pretty vulnerable with my adoption missteps. And I I never mind doing that because I think, <laughs> well, you you quoted Maya Angelou in the book and you said, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Absolutely. And I think that's life, first of all. But as an adoptive parent, it's that's how it is. You do better 
you know, mm-hmm. and then when you know better, you do better. And so let's start at the beginning real quick. Yeah. And let's set a couple of guardrails for people as we're talking. The adoption triad. Yes. Which is, I think, often very uh, misunderstood and undervalued in pieces of it. So explain that to us real quick. So the adoption triad, I mean, and language changes and shifts over time, but the adoption triad overall is just if you imagine a triangle and the different points represent different groups of people that is impacted by adoption. So one triad or one corner of the triangle is adoptive families. Another is adoptees. And then the other is first families. And that could be a birth mom, birth father, but it could also be grandparents, aunts, uncles, first cultural relatives, any of these people at all that are impacted by it. And so when you talk about the adoption triad, you're talking about this family that you have formed, not through biology, but through basically covenant and even like legal, you know, legal, it's binding legally. And so not only am I bound to um, my sons legally, and grateful to do it. I'm also bound to their first families. I'm connected to them for the rest of my life. And so that's what people are talking about when they're talking about that that triad or that triangle. Okay. I also think we jump the gun here also. Let's just tell everyone mm-hmm. where we come to the adoption table. If you're new to my life, uh, three out of four of my children joined our family through mm-hmm. adoption. Two were born in Haiti and one was born in Texas. So I have four children. Two are biological and two are adopted um, domestically one in North Carolina, one in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have open adoptions, which means that we are in contact with their first families. Now that can mean a, a, a wide variety of things when you say I'm in contact with their first family or I have an open adoption. For us, it looks differently in both adoptions. And we have two triads currently. We're actually in the process of adopting baby number five. And so we are, there's a, be a third triad in our family as well. Um, but each triad looks differently and how we interact with those for family looks differently, but we have open adoptions. Love it. Love it. Um, you say in your book, you say, I don't want you to forsake adoption, but I do want you to pursue adoption in a way that honors the dignity of every person in the triad and in a way that reflects the very goodness of God. Yeah. Um, unpack that for us a little bit. You know, when we started the adoption process, it was at the, probably the end of a season or an end of an era where the evangelical American church was gung-ho adoption. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing because we fervently believe that every child should have access to a safe and loving home. However, some of the marketing narratives might have been um, a little pushy in that everyone should adopt. Everyone needs to adopt. If you can, if you're able, if you've thought about it sometime, you should do it. And I don't think that's true. Um, I think now that we've gotten into it and We've listened to adult adoptees. We've listened to first families who've been impacted by it. The narrative is not everybody just adopt color a colorblind approach to, hey, you should adopt internationally. It doesn't matter whether you're equipped or not. Or, hey, you should, you should adopt transracially. It doesn't matter what you think about race. It's a safe and loving home. I don't think that's true. And so if you're not able to have conversations about race, about inequity, about trauma, about brokenness, if those things make you uncomfortable, you might not be a great candidate for adoption. And so I say that, um, I think people reading the book or might pick up pick up the book initially might be like, is she trying to talk us out of doing this really good thing? And the answer is maybe, maybe, depending on where you're at, adoption's not a great option for you. However, if the Lord has called you to this, I will also say um, he is gonna provide ways for you to kind of do what Maya Angelou says. is like, you might not know everything right now, but taking steps in your educational journey, taking steps in um, getting close to the topic and learning more about it, he's going to equip you along the way to really deal with some of these really hard things. Yeah, that's so good. You know, we started our adoption process for the very first time in 2005, Mm -hmm. so a long time ago. And um, that was in, I would say, maybe not the height, but I was in that whole evangelical, Yes. if you've thought about it, if you've even seen the word adoption and you love Jesus, do it, do it. And um, I, I've said this publicly before, there's a video online where I say, if you are a Christian, yeah. you should adopt. And it makes me want to literally vomit. Yes. Um, because I'm like you. I don't believe that to be true at all. No. And I think that people took a mandate to care. Yes. And made that mandate to adopt, which is not true. It's not scriptural. And it's not beneficial for anybody. No. And it's not the, I think it's one of those things where adoption became the solution to a lot of problems that it wasn't meant to be. The solution for and so when we talk about adoption the goal of adoption is not to 
fit the needs for people. And I say this gently, and I say this with a lot of care. If you are unable to have children, uh, adoption is not meant to meet that need. Um, it can, and sometimes the Lord can use that to get you on the path to adoption. But we use adoption as a band-aid for a lot of societal ills. Um, and versus getting at the root of them, we just have been like pro-adoption, adopt. Well, you know, this kid this kid has a traumatic past. Well, let's just adopt them into a better home. That might not be the answer. Right. Family preservation might be the answer. Yeah. The church coming around another family and supporting them might be a better answer versus removing that child out of their first home. Yep, yep. Uh, your book is uh, titled, It Takes More Than Love. And I think that is true. It's one of the things I remember when I was interviewing on the Holy Post and Sky asked me, like, if you could go back and tell yourself anything. I, I said, I would tell myself that... Mm-hmm. Um, it you know love doesn't solve all problems love doesn't heal all things yeah and love is beautiful and it's god yeah uh but we need more than just a loving two-parent home to to take care of a child's trauma and wounds you know this whole concept that we're talking about of you know there was this era of just like just adopt just adopt Mm -hmm. just adopt it I don't, I don't want to say it led to, maybe it exposed this idea of white saviorism. And um, I want you to expand on that because I think this makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. Absolutely. And how we saw this. And honestly, I'd like to have a conversation about how we don't become this. Yeah. Because I think this is real easy to become. Absolutely. Well, I think there's a couple of things at play when we talk about saviorism in the church. For many years, even just short-term missions trips, mm-hmm. we would go and we'd want to, we'd be, we'd be told this message of, hey, we are supposed to serve the least of these. So we'd get our groups, we'd go overseas. In matching t-shirts. In matching t-shirts. And listen, <laughs> and I if did. they're fluorescent, listen, even better. <laughs> I did these. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, listen, I am not, I am not mocking this. I no, also no. am not saying there's no value or worth in this. Right. I think they can be done well. However, I think they have also not been done well. And so we'd go overseas and I, and I tell the story um, and I'm, I went overseas in seminary and I went to Kenya and I went to the church service and I took a bunch of pictures. This is before the day of Instagram, so it wasn't immediate. But when I got back to States after out of um, a few weeks later, I posted this picture of me holding this little girl from a church service and she had two parents. Um, They were brothers and sisters in Christ. They look differently than us. They were dressed differently than us. But I posted a picture of me holding her in my lap. And she was precious. She like took to me and we sat in church together. And but she was a she was a sister in Christ. I posted that I posted my album on Facebook. I made that my profile picture. I'm cringing. I know, I know, I know. Um, But then people would comment to me like, hey, how was your trip to Africa? They're like that poor little girl we saw in your picture. Is she an orphan? Like, and I was like, no, no, no. And at the time, I didn't have the language or the knowledge to understand what what didn't feel right. Mm. But looking back now, I realized I showcased myself on the internet as being some sort of savior mm. of like, I was going over here to help these poor people mm. when in all reality, that wasn't the purpose of the trip at all. Right. I went over there to minister to our white American minis- missionaries mm. and see the work that they were doing and that they were partaking in and to partner and meet other local missionaries there who were doing work. Um, and instead, my post made it about me. I highlighted something, I didn't give enough information, and I portrayed an image that wasn't true. Um, And I portrayed myself as a a savior. Mm -hmm. Taking that idea and that kind of idea that we were supposed to go serve the least of these, forgetting that we are also fellow least of these, um, we've kind of done that in the same thing in adoption spaces. So it's not that adoption is horrible and that we should not care for children. That's not it. The problem is when we take a good thing and we start serving and we make it about us, Mm. we make it about instead of finding a home for every child, it's about finding a child that best fits our family Mm. or finding um, a baby to meet the needs of our, you know, to finish our family Mm -hmm. or to meet our needs versus saying, all right, Lord, there is this crisis in foster care right now. What are we equipped to handle? What are we not equipped to handle? Yeah. And how do we take steps to do that? And it changes the narrative. Our posture isn't, hey, adoption's about us. Look at this good thing we're doing. But it's, hey, the Lord is doing this work here. How can I be a part? And instead of highlighting me, mm-hmm. it's just doing the work and serving and being served as well. Yeah, It's the way we talk about first families. The way people talk about first families, man, 
in the adoption circles, when you get with a room full of adoptive parents, sometimes it can get yeah. sticky, yeah. if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. The way we honor our kids' first families is not by saying, oh, well, we're, we're loving on them, and it's such a joy to get to serve them. It's, hey, well, you know what? I'm also served by my kids' first family. Mm-hmm. The way they have loved on me, it's different. Yeah. Because we have different set of lifestyles and different set of beliefs and different set of resources. Mm-hmm. But I have been blessed and served by yeah. getting to know them well and getting to for them getting to share pieces of their family's history mm-hmm. and their culture and their dreams for our shared son. Yeah. Um, that is a gift to me. But it's not me coming to this relationship as a savior. It's me participating in, in whatever way I can to make sure that this child thrives. It's almost like the... I understand the language of Savior, but as you were talking, I also think it's like a, a power thing as well. Yes. Like, where are we equally distributing power between all three places? Yes. Or is one side of this triad have all the power? And, and owning the narrative. Yes. that's And owning the narrative. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so far, that's why as a white adoptive mom, when Trillia asked me to write this book, I knew that I would do it. However, I entered into it lightly because the last thing we need is a white adoptive mom coming to this space saying... Hey, I want to own the narrative on this. Mm-hmm. I want to tell you guys how to be a good adoptive parent and what not to do. And so my I've been very nervous about the launch of this book because my whole hope was not to come as an expert, but like, hey, man, I failed. Mm. I have messed up a dozen times. And I'm going to over the next decade. Yeah. However, I think if we lock arms mm-hmm. and if we can kind of open up the conversation about this and listen to adult adoptees and make some changes, I think we can make some progress, not just in our own families, yeah. but in the adoption family, the adoption community as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, I could sit here, we could have an entire show of all the things we've done wrong. So we just <laughs> totally. won't do that. But just know that <laughs> totally. from two adoptive moms, yeah. we could list, we could spend this whole hour doing that. But I do think one of the things that I've grown in so many ways, but one of the ways it's been really like extreme growth maybe is that, and this is embarrassing to say, but listening to adult adoptees. Absolutely. Because I will say years ago into this, I would hear some adult adoptees and I would just immediately think, well, that's, they didn't have, they didn't have me as a mom. Yeah. That's not going to be my kid's story. Um, And I think what has kind of helped me transition into not believing more, because that's not it. It wasn't a matter of belief, but just a matter of value maybe is as my kids have gotten older, I can easily say they need to hear those adult adoptees because yes. they need to know that they're not alone in this. Absolutely. And that, that those feelings are normal. And so if right. we can normalize, hey, you're allowed to have questions about your origin story, mm-hmm. about the gaps in your origin story. It's very normal. Yeah. This is normal. If we can normalize some of the hurt, some of the maybe even disappointment about, hey, you have a white mom. Yeah, I'm real sorry. I'm sorry that your first family did not work out in a way that you would have hoped and that I also hope for you. Mm. That didn't happen and that's okay. But to hear those that like, it's not just from a parent, but these other voices of saying, I've I've been there, I felt this, I'm going through it. I'm still walking through it and that's okay, but I'm okay and I'm a healthy human mm. and I'm thriving. I think that's so encouraging to our kids to say, hey, you can have trauma, you can have brokenness and you're going to be okay. Yeah. It's so good because we can have both, we can hold both pain and hope at the same time, Absolutely. suffering and gladness, uh, loss and family, all those can coexist. And I think, um, before my kids, when my kids were younger, and I believe this slide that love would heal all things, I thought once I adopted my children, I would say these children, I was mm-hmm. adopted once when I I would think in my head once they came home, then everything would be great. Yeah, because they would have their mom and dad, and I look back and I think, man, what a privileged thing for me to say. I was having a conversation with one of my kids the other day. We were talking about trauma. And um, we're big believers in counseling at our house. And I said, hey, can you think of anything traumatic in your life? And they're like, no. And so I, and I said, everyone has trauma. I yeah. told my child, I was like, I have trauma in my life. And I started listing out some things that they would not have thought. And I, it was just this open conversation that we were having. Um, but I'll be honest with you, that would have scared the crap out of me 15 years ago. Oh, absolutely. And even just the idea of like, I think, you know, I went into parenting thinking I'm going to like, first off, I'd, I'd, 
it was not in me in the 20s to be like, I want to have a bunch of kids. That If you'd known me as like a 25-year-old, <laughs> everyone is floored that I have four children. Almost and I'm, five. Uh, almost five. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's like, what in the world? But if I'm going to do something, I would be like, I'm going to nail this. I'm going to nail this parenting gig. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to read all the books. I'm going to figure out how to do it perfectly. And I struggled. Mm. Like I have, like I've struggled um, in figuring out, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the last few years, I've gotten a lot more comfortable saying, hey, y'all, I have no clue what I'm doing. And I'm really sorry, but I'm a human too. And I've got my own set of heartaches and suffering and trauma and things that, that I bring to the table you've got your own issues, you've got your own issues, and we're one big happy family, we're just going to get through it together. But the idea, like, Brittany in her 20s, thinking that I'd be having those conversations with my elementary Mm -hmm. aged kids, (laughs) would have been like, nah, yeah, you need to get your act together, girl. Like, you need to like cover that up or figure it out. But it's been such a freeing thing. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You know, um, 2020 brought up a lot of, um, it put a big spotlight on some racial injustice in our country, and those injustices were not new. Um, there was just spotlight. It was just like the perfect, perfect. I don't even want to say storm, because I think it was a really great thing. Um, and so I've had lots of conversations about um, this on the podcast, and I come at it the same way you come at it, yeah. as a mom to black boys, and I have a black daughter as well. Um, and that's a unique place to come at the situation because never in a million years would you nor I say we understand what it feels like to be black in America. Neither one of us will ever experience what our children yeah. will. But when you think about this through the lens of adoption, um, you actually, uh, I'm going I'm to read this from your book. You said writer, author, and transracial adoptee Rebecca Carroll, which I read her book, um, White, The White Gaze. Yes. <gasps> Such a great book. It's so good. <laughs> uh, she was asked by Trevor Noah, she, should white people be adopting black children? Mm-hmm. This is a question. Yeah. You know? And she said she was very much loved by her parents, that she believes transracial adoption can work. However, she warned, if white parents adopt black children and they don't make very conscious decisions about incorporating, including, immersing, valuing blackness, and it's deeply problematic. It's not just one doll. It's not just one poster. It's not just one mentor. It's really an immersion process that has to happen. And so should white parents adopt black children? If they are prepared to raise black children into black adults, then yes. And I really value her response, and I valued her book a whole lot. It was a a great asset to me as a mom. Um, But you and I are both raising black children, and there is this concept that was highlighted alongside a spotlight being put on racial injustice in 2020. I feel like there was a spotlight on the church, too, with colorblindness. Absolutely. And so what is your conversation around colorblindness within homes where children have different skin color? Yeah, colorblindness is such a tricky thing, too. And so because there's a lot of people who either A, they now know that they can't say that because they've, they've gone through 2020. You know, I've had friends say, up until 2020, I always said, and they, they kind of like whisper it, and they're like, I was taught growing up just to not talk about, like if you see another ethnicity out, whether it's uh, black American, whether it's an Asian American, a Hispanic American, like we're just not gonna talk about it. We're not gonna talk about it, so we're gonna pretend to not see it. And so um, 
And then there's other people. Just such a privileged thing that we all, it is so privileged to be able to say that. We're just going to, we're just going to, you know, and I I will say, I do think some of them have good intentions, but as we talk about intentions and impact are two very different things. Their intentions are, hey, I want us to live in a world where us looking different or coming from different cultural backgrounds doesn't actually impact our daily lives because it doesn't impact mine. I, I, because it doesn't impact mine. I want you to have that as well. I think that's the last time I had this conversation with a person who I loved at the end of it, that was the root of their, like, that was the root of their colorblindness. They're like, I just, I don't want to see color. I'm like, yes, but the world does see color. So we have to as well. And biblically, if we're, if we're like Bible believing Christians and like the doctrine of Imago Dei is that every single person who walks this earth is made in the image of God. And so whether you are Hispanic, Asian, American, a white American, a black American, Australian, you're made in the image of God. And those have specific, it's like God called it good. Yeah. He didn't say, well, we're going to pretend like this hasn't happened. Okay. He called us good. Yeah. And just to throw in here. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone besides a white person be able to say, I just don't see color. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. That's also, what I mean. It is, it's just a very privileged thing. <laughs> yeah. And I understand like yeah. your intention is like, well, can't if, if it doesn't affect me, I don't want it to affect you. Yes. But the truth of the matter is, is that it does. And research has shown is that colorblindness, because that, that even that, that we'll call it a good intention belief, if that's the, if that truly is the root of it. Um, We'll assume the best. We'll assume the best. We're going to assume the best. If that truly is the root of it, it can actually cause more damage because it allows you to live in denial. Oh, yeah. So it can, so you can be in denial of the actual circumstances around you saying, well, we just be a good person and don't see color. But every person who I know who is not white, whether they are Hispanic, whether they are African-American, um, they have all said, no, I've definitely experienced racism. For sure. Based on the color of my skin. Yeah. Um, I've experienced discrimination. I've experienced what it's like to be treated differently at a restaurant, in a in the mall, and in the church. Yep. And so that should break our hearts. What Rebecca is saying is the same thing that you and I are saying. I'm going to lump you in with yeah, me because I'm assuming that we yes. are saying this as well. Is that if you aren't willing to forego your colorblindness, yeah. you do not need to bring a child into your family that looks different than you. Oh, 100%. Um, absolutely. If you have even, and even just, I would say conversing about race, if conversing about race and racism is hard, if talking about trauma is hard, but specifically let's go on the race, like the racist racism issue here. If talking about that is difficult for you, if you have a really hard time with it, I would say, you know what, you need to either take some time and revisit at a later day after some significant education, um, and listening to a lot of christian voices and leaders out there who are speaking on this topic um or you just need to consider to not adopt you can support adoptive families you can support foster families you can um, be all on board on family preservation but i would say do not adopt a child of a different ethnicity if you're not willing to embrace their cultural heritage and that's not just a black and white thing this is if you're going to adopt a child internationally from another country and you're unwilling to talk about the beauty and the benefits of their cultural heritage, um, don't adopt. Yeah, don't do it. Yeah, there's a woman that I follow on Instagram. She um, uh, was in the foster care system in America. I do not know her story. All I know is that she's a teacher right now, mm-hmm. and she does a lot of educating on her Instagram page about um, really how like language matters and conversation pieces that you can have when you are in a direct relation with someone within that triad. And I appreciate her work so much. I think her name is Tina. Oh, name? Tina Bauer. Yes. Cute thing. Yes. Long yes. black hair. Yes. Do you yes. know her? I don't know her personally, but I she's follow so her on cute, Instagram. She's so cute, isn't she? And she's... Tina, thank you for yes. your work. We love you. She's amazing. Okay, what do you like about her? I don't know if I'm her? pronouncing like, her last name right, but What yeah. do you love about her? And I'll tell you what I love about her. I What I like about her is she's using her first-hand experience yes. um, as someone who's experienced foster care who's also experienced um, adoption through foster care and saying, hey, as a kid, and she's now a teacher, as a kid in your classroom who's experienced trauma, this is helpful. This is not helpful. And more than anything, I think we probably both had experiences where we've walked into either a an educational you know, environment, whether it's church or school, and you walk in and you're just like, oh, no. Oh, oh no. My Sunday school teacher is going to send home a white paper doll with my black child 
and what 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 why what are we doing what are, what are we doing here yeah. um or you have an assignment where it's like hey everybody let's talk about our family tree mm-hmm. and yeah. <laughs> you're like no yep. please no yeah. yeah um and so we've all had those moments within the adoption triad but i love what she's doing because she's just not talking and educating adoptive parents or um her you know or just even like adoptees or foster kids she's saying hey world let's let's do a little bit better and that's exactly why I love her as well. And again, I don't, neither one of us actually know her. This is the world of the internet. Yes. But I do love it because it's, she's helping people like that. My Angela quote that we started with, she's helping people know so they can do better. Absolutely. And I think any educator right now, uh, we'll take adoption and foster care out of the picture. We have a lot of children who are growing up in some hard situations and mm-hmm. they could be in their two parent home. You know, it's just, life has been hard, especially in this pandemic. And I just love when an educator is saying, I'm going to go the extra mile to, it's not about accommodating because I'm not asking you to, to like change your, I'm asking you to just see my kid and see their needs and really meet them where they are. And she's teaching us that. She's so good. She's so good. Tina, look at us. We're talking about you. Let's talk for a minute about um, people who are not in the triad. So we're not talking about adoptive parents, we're not talking about adoptees, and we're not talking about um, birth families. Let's just talk about our friends and our Sunday school teachers and our teachers. Um, You and I have plenty of stories I'm sure we could share about people saying the most (laughs) outrageous things to us. Um, I'll give you one. I was in line. This is when I just had two kids. So Amos and Sawyer were not home yet. And uh, my biological child looks just like his daddy, Mm -hmm. super white. And then my uh, son, who's born in America, is biracial. And uh, I'm in line at Old Navy and I've got them. They're probably, I'm trying to keep them from grabbing everything. You know, they're probably like three and one or whatever. And a woman behind me, she looked at me. This is what she said. She goes, ah, it's obvious they have different dads, right? Oh, my word. Oh, my (laughs) word. Right? First of all, who says that to somebody? (laughs) And I was like, nope, same dad. That's all I said. You know, so uh, that is like frustrating in the moment. I can laugh about it now. But there have been also some like people that we love and are close to us who just unknowingly have said hurtful, harmful things. And so talk about how people who are listening who are not directly involved in this triad like why does this matter to them how can they learn what can they do to love people better you know i think especially for believers you know scripture tells us that there is life and death in our tongues mm-hmm. like absolutely the way we talk about something matters and i think that's a really important thing to apply in general in life we have the power of words um the way it can harm another person, the way we can wound and whiplash somebody with our, our words, it, it can be incredibly wounding. With the adoption, though, I feel like not only do we need an added level of care and education just because you should, you, we should care about how our words impact someone, we're hurting somebody who's already wounded and traumatized. Mm. And so for me, it's not about how the words make me feel. I mean, yes, I have feelings too as a human. And there are times when I have gotten sassy in the target line. Um, but the times that wound me most are when I'm sitting across the table of somebody who I love and they say something incredibly offensive. And then even if I gently correct them, I'm met with defensiveness. Mm. That's It's wounding to me, but my defensiveness is not for my heart, it's for the ears and the heart of my children. And so I think anybody, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, I think youth pastors, I think teachers, anyone dealing with kids right now need to be trauma-informed in general, but then they also need to be adoption-informed because especially if the church has done such a strong push for this in the last, the early 2000s, we have to be educated on how to handle this now. We have to be educated. If we're going to push and say, hey, everybody get involved in adoption. All right. Well, we have families who've adopted. Now let's everybody get educated on adoption so we are not inflicting more trauma on these children. Totally good. Like if you're listening and you have any kind of say in any of your children's ministry, like have trainings, like bring someone in to do a training. And like you said, it's not just adoption. Trauma-informed care Mm -hmm. is so valuable right now uh, for, for our kids. But also if you've got kids, if you've got parents in your church who are like, sacrificially like either they're like serving at some kind of shelter or they're a CASA volunteer or whatever they are um how do we equip them and walk alongside them I um heard a story where um a woman was at church and it was like orphan Sunday Mm. and first of all that's another like soapbox here is that like we're taking the word orphan and applying it across the board to every kid that's adopted and that's not true. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Um, 
anyhow, and at at the Sunday, this church, they asked everyone that had adopted or was adopted to stand up. That's terrible. And my thinking is, I think whenever we do this from the pulpit or a big stage, one of the things that we have to think about is not just who's in the room. Who's in the room? Not just adoptive parents, but are there adult adoptees there? Are there birth parents there? Um, Are there parents who've had their rights terminated via the government? Who who's in our congregation so when we're doing this and again let's just go ahead and assume good intentions Mm -hmm. to honor adoptive parents one we don't need to we don't need to push the savior narrative anymore um, or the cell over overly celebratory narrative anymore we have to think who else is in the room and how that impacts them yeah and how that could be triggering for some teenage adoptee or an adult adoptee going well cool my mom is she going to stand up? Is she not going to stand up? Like she's going to get applauded for being my mom? Like what was I that bad? Was it is it that is that that big of a thing? It could be I don't know. I would be furious if I was a, an adoptee in a room where that happened. Language matters. Language and matters. I hope like my biggest hope in just the conversation that you and I are having is that this is personal to us. And it's personal to a lot of people listening. I have a lot of people listening who this will be personal to. Um but also it's just like as Christians, we want to value people and we want to value people's stories. And if there's ever a time in our churches or in our communities where we for someone would feel less than, that's where we need to learn. Yeah. People have done a lot of work over the last year and a half. Um, and again, I want to say this has been going on since our country was formed, but we have seen a spotlight on racial issues in the last year and a half. And a lot of churches have put a lot of work into that. Yeah. They've had a lot of conversations. And so I by no means want this conversation to be like, let let Brittany and I tell you how awful people are. Oh. But what we want, our heart for both of us is like, hey, listen to us, two moms. We don't know everything, but we just have life experience. And say, hey, how do we all learn together? Absolutely. And realizing I don't have the answers. You don't have the answers. We've made a thousand mistakes along the way. But the purpose is not to shame. The purpose is to allow conviction in the Holy Spirit to say, all right, let's get on board and let's do some work. Mm. And so I could beat myself up, up over the way those first few years of adoption, I like get sick to my stomach over some of the things I said, yep. the things I wrote. Me too. Me um, too. The phrases, you know, I would say to people, I, I cringe when I look back, but I think shame is a liar. Yep. And we, whenever we've been convicted on something, Satan can use that shame to keep us down in the depths of despair, whereas conviction is a catalyst for mm, growth and further good. learning. And so my prayer is that conversations like these, my book, it's I, my prayer is that it's not something that adoptive parents read and go, I have so much shame. Mm-mm. I didn't know. Mm-mm. I'm doing all these things wrong. I hope that's not the case. My prayer is that it it gives you a tool and it's a catalyst for change in your own heart where you need it. Yeah, it is. It did yeah. that. I, I am so I'm so proud of you. I want to let everyone know this is April first that you're hearing this, but in May, we're talking to um, Jamie Finn, who's a, a she runs a foster care organization. We're talking to Tori Peterson, who was in the foster care system and actually aged out. Uh, we're talking to Patoya Hall, who is a single mom, um, adopted a little girl. Uh, and we're also going to talk to um, a birth mom. And so we're having a lot of conversations in May uh, around this because I value it. And I believe in these conversations. And I think that they are helpful for all of us as a society um, and as Christ followers as well. So those are all coming up. I love that you're doing that. Okay, I want to ask about your doctorate. Okay. And um, tell me why you decided to study this. Why it's important, I feel like obvious, Jamie, but tell us anyways. So I, after my undergrad, I went to seminary, which, you know, I won't tell you the story of how I got to seminary. I could say I wasn't planning on going to seminary and the Lord like got me a job at the seminary and I was still like bent on not attending. So I got a job in the missions office and the, eventually I ended up taking classes and then I eventually ended up getting a seminary degree. So I went to seminary. That's funny. Like I just was there. And so I was like, I might as well go to class. Exactly. And I ended up with a degree. Yes, exactly. So I I remember my parents were like, why are you like, it was, it was mind blowing every step of the way. It's something that like 22 year old Brittany wouldn't traditionally do, but the Lord just kept like opening doors and making me go there. So I went, I went to seminary, but I never had a female 
professor my entire seminary experience. Um, I ended up getting married at my last year there. I met Ben and I, my plan was to go overseas. Um, but Ben was like, nah, man, we're staying, we're staying here. Well, I'm not going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we ended up staying and starting a family. And so I ended up actually getting a different degree over at NC State. And so I taught ESL to refugees for a season at community college. And I did that and I loved it. Um, it was a lot of fun, but I kept wondering like, why why did I ever have that string for ministry? What am I supposed to do with it here and now? I don't really know. Well, I, you know, we, we eventually got pregnant. I had twins. Jude came along a few years later. And all of a sudden, I'm in the thick of parenting at the time, three small little ones, but still feeling the stirring to do ministry. I don't know what it looks like. We're moving from North Carolina to Texas. And in, in, in during this time period, when a professor called me and said, hey, Brittany, we have this program at our seminary, and I think you'd be a great fit. Also, because he knew what I was going to ask. I'm like, how many girls? How many girls are in the program? Because I do not want to go to class and be the only female sitting in a room full of dudes, you know, talking about theology. And I'm just sitting there like, dee, 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 dee. Mm-hmm. so um, he was like, no, this we're intentionally trying to make this cohort a little bit more diverse in gender and ethnicity. And so I talked about it with them a little bit. We prayed about it. And I didn't have an end goal. The The weird thing is, is everyone's like, hey, what's your end goal for your doctorate? And I was like, well, I don't know. I just feel like the Lord opened these doors. And it's not the smartest way to enter a doctoral program. I understand that. Like, I completely hear that. But all I knew at the time was I had never had a female professor. And I thought, I wonder if maybe in another season I could teach at a seminary wow. and be a female professor. I finished all my coursework for my doctorate, and I've still yet to have a female professor in seminary between a master's and a doctoral level program. And it's so not okay. It, it's not okay. It's not okay. And and I know that there are females, they've in the last few years, there are females who teach there, which is great, but it, that was not my experience and it still hasn't been. Um, and so, and I don't know whether I'll go back and teach at seminary. I don't know what the Lord's going to do, do with this Do you follow Joel Matamali? No. Ugh. Wait. You need to immediately Wait. start following him. I actually just followed him two days ago because um, he wait, he posted something about um, being in a room with Chris Kane and Lisa Turkhurst and all these women, right? And, so and he was I, talking about that exact same yes. thing. He said in all his classes, he's uh-huh. never had a female professor. I just saw that the other day and I commented on it and I followed him immediately. He's a big advocate for women. It's It's been one of those weird things where it's it's like, I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to knock down the doors and be like, let women in or like, I want to be this like, like, I don't know, die hard, like make sure we have a female professor that I'm not trying to be that at the same time. Although you do believe that. I do believe okay, that. Yeah. A thousand You're like percent. just saying this isn't my marching order yes, right this now. This isn't my marching order to be like, hey, my one goal is to make sure that we have female and higher levels of seminary education. Mm-hmm. That's not my my priority. That wasn't my priority in going to seminary, and it wasn't my priority in getting my doctorate. However, I'm passionate about it because I have been on the receiving end of being the only female in the room and having a very different perspective from my peers. And I think it's helpful when we have people who don't look like us, who don't come with the same experiences, reading the Bible reading the commentaries and bringing our full selves to the table to say, this is what the Lord has taught me through this. This is what I got when reading this, um, you know, this book from 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. It actually feels pretty offensive to women. Yeah. Um, and somebody going, oh, I never thought about it mm-hmm. that way because I'm not, not a, a woman. woman. <laughs> yeah. But so I think that there's value in having women in those spaces. Um, but that wasn't my like goal in going to seminary. But I found regularly I'm going, hey, y'all. Mm-hmm. Where are the girls at? Yeah. Where are the women in these conversations? I want to be gentle here in the sense of not to say that spouses of professors don't have value. They have a lot of value. They are amazing. Um, Women, pastors, wives have value in the church as well. However, there are plenty of women who want to go through the same level of training and equipping in a seminary environment and in churches and in ministries that have done the work to be there and to have conversations here that I hope and pray that my daughters, when they are in their 20s going, hey, what do I want to do with my life? And one of them says, hey, I have, I have a call to ministry. They're going to go to a seminary and they're not going to be in the minority that they'll also be able to have people who look like them in power. And there it is, ladies. Have you read Esau Macaulay's Reading While Black? Yes. 
that made me think about that as well. Mm -hmm. Like it is important for us to have conversations with people, uh, be in the room with people like diversified, not only just gender, but also ethnicity, socioeconomic, all kinds of stuff. And his interview with me about that was just phenomenal. And he's having those same conversations. And the cool thing is, is making more room at the table doesn't mean we're leaving other people out. Right. Like I'm not taking some other dude's spot in the seminary program. You know, it's one of those things where we can just build a build a bigger table. Mm-hmm. Let's see who else can come and arrive at these conversations and let's see how it shapes the conversation and it shapes our learning experience. Yeah. When I, one of our, the girls in my cohort, she's in a wheelchair and her perspective on different things, on, on theology, on the way we do church, on ecclesiology, like a church planning, on mission trips, her perspective it blew my mind, and it's a perspective I would not have gained had I not studied beside her and read so the good. same books and the same things. And her saying, "Actually, I couldn't do that." Right. So, is this true for me too? That's so good, Brittany. Yeah, that's another like diversification that is often left out yes. of able-bodied people. Yeah. First, yeah, so good. Uh, but your dissertation is on racial representation in uh, Christian children's literature. Yeah. That's exciting. It, it is. I, I hope it. I mean, that's what I'm writing right now. You know, they always have the power to say, Brittany, this is trash. Go start over. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Which I'm hoping doesn't happen. But yeah, that's that's I'm I'm going to do a content analysis based on different years and compare and contrast the quantity of diverse books and diverse children's books and illustrations, but then also measure all right, are these authors, what are their ethnicity? Mm. What are the what are the illustrators' ethnicities? Um, do they, are we just diversifying content? Or are we also diversifying our staff and um, kind of like our lineup of authors and illustrators as well? That is so good. So we'll see. Congrats. Thank you. All right, guys, this book comes out in just a couple days. It takes more than love by Brittany Salmon. Brittany, what are you reading? What are you loving these days? Okay, what I'm reading right now, I just started a new book. Okay, do you know of um, Book of the Month Club? I used to be a member. Used to? I couldn't keep up. And okay, I, that's that's fair. And listen, I read a lot of books. Yeah. But most of them are not coming from Book of the Month. That's most fair. of them are like people that are on the show. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's completely fair. Yeah. So I found a couple years ago, it was my last year of actual coursework, and I was like, I have not read a fiction, non-Christian book in so long. And it drove me crazy. So I joined the book of the month and it's kind of like stitch fix, mm-hmm. but for books. Yep. And so I am currently reading and I just started it, but I've had to like push pause because I'm having to do a lot of schoolwork right now and studying, but it's a book called made. So I'm reading that book and I'm, I'm curious to see, I've like, I'm like a chapter in, Okay. but it's, it's just a fiction book. I uh, love fiction books, Yeah. but um, I'm at a point right now where I, this is a weird feeling where I feel like if a book is not changing my life, yeah, I need to not read it right now. Oh, totally. It feels almost like wasted space and wasted time. And I clearly know there's time for like, get. and I don't mean like I'm reading like all kind of like heavy books, but even like memoirs. Yeah. Those are life changing sometimes. I mean. Absolutely. Have we talked about Will Smith's book? Um, I loved it. You did it on audio, right? I did it on audio. Thank you. That's the only okay. way to do it. I did it on audio and... Um, I love that book. But so so I go through phases as well. So you'll like I'm January. reading a book right now that you recommended to me. Which one? Where's your husband? Who's your husband? Oh, yes. Okay. I also love that one too. Okay. So in January, December and January, I kind of took a break from any sort of like serious, yeah. heavy book, uh-huh. a Christian book. Because you weren't in school, I bet. I wasn't in school. Yeah. And I was like, I need to just like kind of the opposite. I need to flush my mind mm-hmm. and just read for fun. And so um, I went on a reading rampage and that was one that I read. I actually listened to that audiobook and I really enjoyed it. I like the audiobook for mm-hmm. sure. I'm listening to it as well. I'm about to start listening to you and you, I think that you might've told me this, Trevor Noah. <gasps> yes. And everyone said, put the book down and go and buy the audio. Go get the audio. Yes. Okay. So I did. And it's my next, it's whenever I finish, where's your husband or who's your husband, uh-huh. whatever I'm listening to now, I'm going to start that. I will say, I feel like if it's a memoir of any sort of person, like Matthew McConaughey's book, oh, Greenlight, so um, Will Smith's book, Will, this one, I feel like if the author is going to narrate it, I am going to listen to it instead. I agree. Especially if they're an interesting personality. Yeah. You know. you know someone's memoir that I have not finished and have got to finish it, but it's the like it's like eight hundred hours long, and I didn't stop it because I wasn't liking it. I just 
stopped it because I don't know what happened. Uh, President Obama's. You know, I did the same thing, though. Have you finished it? I did finish it, but I stopped it for a, a solid season because it's so many hours. It's so <laughs> long. I literally, no joking, I think it's like 27 hours or something. It, it I don't remember what it was, but it was something bizarre. And I was like, I, I actually need a break. I need a break. This is this is fantastic, but I need a break. I, I'm going to, I think I'm going to do Trevor's book and then I'm going to finish President Obama's mm-hmm. book and then we'll see what takes me yeah. next. Um, what are you loving these days? I'm loving my Ember coffee mug. My husband, Ben, got that for me as a gift. We love coffee in our family. Yeah. Like, love it. But I'm notorious for getting a cup of coffee and taking a few sips. But, you know, we have four kids at yeah. home right now. Mm-hmm. And um, the youngest one's two. So his needs trump my coffee needs. Yep. So I'm regularly leaving it on the counter and then either heating it up or being like, oh, man, I don't really want warmed up coffee. And it sits all day and it's disgusting. And then he'd come home and be like, wait, there's still a half cup of yeah. coffee on, yeah. on the yeah. counter why and i was like i made myself a new cup because i wanted something hot and fresh yeah. he's like this is getting wasteful mm-hmm. so he got me the ember coffee mug which keeps your coffee mug warm for like an hour and a half you love is, it which is all i need i love it we have two now mm. one for him i loved it so much and he saw me loving it that he got one for him I as well it. we're uh, big fans i love it okay what else beauty counter jellies the Those lip gloss the lip so glosses I don't do a lot of color in my mm-hmm. lips, but I do like their lip glosses. I'm a beauty counter fan. Brittany, listen, I hope that doesn't sound like I'm over here just tooting your horn too much, but I need everyone to know that um, I love adoption. It's how our family is built. I also see a lot of downfalls with how adoption has been presented in the past decade or two decades. Um, and I see a lot of hurt that's happened mm. to families, adoptees, first families, um, and you took something really difficult and you you did a phenomenal job with this book. Mm. And so congrats, congrats on that. Thank you. I want to say that if you are a teacher, if you work with kids at your church, if you see children in your neighborhood, <laughs> <laughs> this book is for you. Mm. And so, and if you are an adoptive parent, um, Again, I want to reiterate what you said so beautifully is that this is not like to shame you of things mm-hmm. you might have gotten wrong because, again, we could fill an entire show. A week's worth of shows. A week's worth mm-hmm. of shows with things we've done wrong. And we will continue to get wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, a, it's like a guide. It's like this little lighthouse is saying, hey, here's what we can do. Um, and if you're thinking about adoption, I would say this needs to be required reading. Yeah. So there's that. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much. Thanks for coming really on. Does. Thank you so much for listening to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy podcast. We are truly grateful for every single story that we get to share with you, every encouragement we get to give you, and every opportunity we get to point all of us to Jesus. If you're loving this show, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, tell your friends. That is the number one way that people find out about our show. It's because you tell them. Join us right here every Wednesday and Friday for meaningful conversations that will make us think, they'll make us laugh, and they'll always point us back to Jesus. And come find me other places on the internet as well. I love Instagram. I'm over there at Jamie Ivy. And if you've never visited my YouTube page, you're going to want to go there. Have you ever listened to a show and wondered, I wonder what they look like? Well, go find us over there. It's jamieivy.com slash YouTube. The Happy Hour is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell. Graphics are by Amaya Savoy Easton. The show is edited by Angie Elkins. And I'm your host every week, Jamie Ivey. And goodness gracious, I love being here with you guys. Until next time, have a happy hour with a friend. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. 
If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. 